we are now in a time which I call half time and half times we have throughout our lives. We have it in politics, we have it as a company, we have it as people. Now, what is the future is what you, what uh, you, what I do, what each one of us does, that all these little, little, little mosaic stones will form the future. And if we are strong enough, if we, if we tend to say, I'm too, too small, I cannot move anything, then nothing will happen. And I'm not talking about big revolutions and, and you know, burning down uh, something. But in our world, we can, we can do the best and we cannot change the systems. The, the future will be, the big picture is that uh, under the leadership of China, emerging economies will gain importance. We will have to adapt to a new competition. We will have to adapt to uh, all the digitalization uh, in our working world. We will, we will have to deal with uh, uh, unpleasant and pleasant uh, consequences of the, these developments. But at the end, we are the creators of our world. We, we decide. Doris Nesbitt is my guest on this episode of Inside Ideas. Brought to you by 1.5 Media and Innovators Magazine, Trend One, uh, Trend Company, as we can see Niels here in the picture. We also see Doris uh, Naisbet right there live. So excited to have her here. I want to tell you a little bit about Doris. She's our special guest today. Uh, she is the co-author of Mastering Megatrends which came out in November 2017. The co-author of Creating Megatrends, China's New Silk Road, came out in May 2017. Co-author of Global Game Change in 2015. China Megatrends, co-author in 2010. Co-author of The China Model in 2011. Co-author of Innovation in China, 2012. I hope you're getting the trend. There's not only a mega trend, but there is a trend here in general. And we're fortunate and so lucky to have her on the show today to speak with us. Um, she's also the author of How to Get Where You Want to Go in 2015, My Lin, My China in 2012, and has written columns for China Youth Daily, Youth Digest, Wirtschaftsblatt, Frankfurter Rundschau, China Business Focus, Tao Kung Pao, and Himalayan News. Uh, Nesbit China Institute was founded as an independent non-for-profit organization in 2017, and it is, its goal is to analyze China's economic, political, social, and cultural transformation with local teams in China cities and provinces. Now, I could go on and on because... Doris and her husband, John, have been doing this for a long time. They've seen and heard pretty much everything, I would say. Um, I've got the two books here that I really want to focus in today. Obviously, uh, uh, Megatrends is very famous. And then another one here, Mastering Megatrends. And uh, I welcome you, Doris, to the show. Thank you for bearing with my long introduction, but it is an honor and pleasure to have you here. 
Thank you very much. And then I, I want to introduce Niels in just one second here. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm very happy to be here with you. It is our pleasure. Niels Miller is uh, also on the screen, as you can see. He is not only a good friend, but the uh, CEO and founder of Trend One, a Humberg company that is actually international. It's all around the world, I believe, and uh, Niels can tell you better than I, but he is the trend expert uh, for Germany and around the world. He releases papers every month with minimum 250 trends and speaks all over the world uh, every single day. Just before we jumped on this podcast, he was on uh, a, a call and uh, doing a, a, an event online. So I welcome you and we are actually fortunate all to know each other and to be speaking about megatrends. And we said, you know what, we need to have John or Doris on the show to have a deep dive discussion about things. And uh, Niels was the one who brought it all together. So I really thank you. And, and we're, gonna, we're not gonna beat you up, Doris, I promise, but we really wanna get into a deep, a deep dive dialogue with you and, and uh, uh, kind of pick your brain because you've just been doing this so long and you've, you've been there every step of the way with John uh, and we, we wanna hear all about it. Thanks, thank you very much. It's such an honor to be here with you, Mark and Doris. Uh, also for me, uh, Nathan, Doris and John uh, are such a front runner in the future market and trend industry. I'm, I'm a big fan of the trend industry because my company is part of this trend industry. And I think you've been the first in the market publishing books around mega trends. And I have one with a individual signature for me. So um, for me, it's, it's, it's a really great session here to meet you live. And also please say hello to John. Uh, it's, it's really an honor to be here with you. And thank you for Mark uh, to organize everything. I'm glad that we're all here. So without getting past the, the introductions, we have a lot of questions for you, some thoughts and ideas that we would like to share. So uh, both of us, we've used the, the, the phrase before um, with you in, a, in our first discussion, Doris, about futurists and that we deal with a lot of people who use the phrase, take the phrase futurist into their mouth and, and um, claim to be futurists who, who are doing this. And during this time of pandemic, the, the true futurists really came out because some of those who had taken that into their mouth they were all of a sudden disappearing or really panicking because all that future talk really didn't come out. Nothing happened. So they didn't apply it into their lives. They weren't prepared. They, their businesses have shut, shut down. And so with what you and John have done over 40 plus years, probably, that uh, I want to know, has that given you resilience? How have you weathered this pandemic? Has that helped you weather the storm or say, boy, we've been talking about some of these things for a while and we applied some of them in our lives and we, were, we had a little resilience and preparedness during this time. Uh, well, uh, you know, we have said uh, not only once that we are in a way lucky to be in the age we are, that we are not young people who are just building up something, who are just maybe opening a new uh, entity, opening a new restaurant, a store, and are really now in a very bad situation. Uh, 
compared to that, we can sort of lean back comfortably, can read a lot, can, can do whatever we want, except that, of course, like you, we are very much cut back in our travel activities, which we enjoyed very much. But apart from that, we belong to the lucky group of people who are not uh, in, a, in a bad way, uh, really hit by that pandemic. That is wonderful to hear. Were there any things where, where you said, wow, this is really unforeseen an aha moment where even some of the things that happened during the pandemic, like Black Lives Matters, or maybe what happened in Belarus or with a US election or anything with the, the, the drastic blame on, on Wuhan and China, um, for different things were any of those things eye-openers or where you said boy that even caught us off guard or uh can you give us a little more insight on on during this time what you've experienced um well let's begin with the end of last year we were in china uh end of last year 2019 and there was uh, no sign we were in fact we were traveling to chinese provinces and uh, everything was optimistic everything uh, was positive we have been to wuhan actually we uh, we uh, we were invited to do more studies on wuhan but you know it's not so easy because uh, it takes we did a study on chengdu once and that took about 2 years to really understand what's going on there so uh, we didn't spend too much time in wuhan but we learned uh, it uh, is a very modern city uh, we were had a lot of contact with the local government and not surprisingly like uh, most governments, local governments uh, in China, they're very well educated. They can pray up and down the Viennese uh, uh, School of Economics. So it's, uh, it was a very, very, very interesting time, also this uh, last December in China. And then we came back and then we heard the first uh, news about uh, a breakout of an unknown uh, flu virus. And just like many others, we, you know, we have been uh, in China in a three city tour during SARS. And we remember that they offered to us to return immediately. We said, oh no, we, we just stay and it will be fine. And I must say, uh, despite any look into the future, we did not have the look into the future that told us this is going to be such a, a, a pandemic and, and in a way uh, tragic for many, many people. So uh, while we were like many thinking it would pass sooner or later, we were all surprised by uh, how fast it really became the dimension uh, we now know it has. Uh, given the other things you mentioned, I mean, we, you cannot really be surprised what happens in America, except that uh, maybe the polarization will lead to a positive polarization and a, a better and more thoughtful uh, um, idea and understanding about what, what's the underlying thing behind Trump's success. And that is the polarization of the country. That is the underlying racism that's still there. And one can only hope that we are at the, at the doorstep to a better era now and an era where the American people 
maybe also under the sign of a pandemic that hits people of all kinds, all colors, all social levels. Maybe that's the time when Americans can really understand that uh, it is what unites us that made the country big and not what separates us. Is it, can you give us a little bit more, uh, if you don't mind, a little bit more insight into your and John's background and, and Obviously, you're you're almost global citizens, so you travel a lot. But you're you you both speak English, and I don't know how many other languages, but uh, German as well, and and where you live. But that what what kind of culminated that you've got this big future vision, and this you know uh, um, not only thinking about the trends, but also, you know, aspects of all around the world, not, not just China, but things that are going on in the U.S. Is there any, any path or upbringing that kind of moved you in that direction? Oh, I tried to, to uh, cut that a little short because that's a longer story. Um, first of all, I met John when I was uh, head of a publishing house. And um, one of our editors sort of passingly said when I was uh, leaving to a Congress, oh, you just get John Nesbitt for the house. And I said, no problem. And then I had to deliver. So uh, that was about 26 years ago. There was the Congress, John was the keynote speaker and I tried to catch him, but he was nowhere around. Finally, just by coincidence, he was passing me. I dropped everything, chased after him, and told him I would like to publish his next book. That was the beginning of our story. And neither one of us, you can, <laughs> you may understand, if anybody would have told us, you just met your future uh, <laughs> husband and wife, uh, we would have just laughed. But um, we started uh, to negotiate. I flew to New York, he flew to Frankfurt, and then he flew to Vienna. And very quickly, we, we found that we had a very good uh, understanding and a very good uh, sense of what's important. We sort of uh, both are big picture people. And uh, John said yes. So we published his book, uh, Megatrans Asia. And uh, from that moment on, you know, I arranged speeches for him and we started to, to, to cooperate more and more. And then uh, because we liked each other more and more, we got married in the year 2000. Uh, by that time, I was still head of a publishing house and, um, but I decided that uh, it's, it's important to live our life together and not, uh, I had several offers of German houses and our house was already bought by a German house. I wouldn't have spent too much time with my husband. I would have been, uh, you know, travel for the house and working for the house and he would have been traveling the world. So, Finally, we were just in Singapore. I decided that's it. We spend our life together. We work wonderfully together. That was in the year 2000. And uh, from that moment on, we fully concentrated on our work together. What's so important for my opinion is that uh, to really get a picture of the world, you need to travel the world. And uh, John and I, I cannot tell you how many round the world trips we did. 
first of all, we always had uh, speeches all over the world, but in addition, we added to the, to the travel to the cities where, where the talks were, where the conferences are, and chose uh, more remote places and uh, needed time to really talk to the people on the ground. Because, of course, we had the wonderful adva uh, advantage that we were two. We were together 24 hours. We got up in the morning. We could talk about the things that were important to the world and to us. Uh, we could, we met people together. We could discuss our work together. So it's about the most wonderful life I can imagine one can have. Besides, of course, that when you have a very good marriage, it makes everything much easier. Yeah, so, there's always not that separation, you know, how was your day at work? I mean, you kind of are on the same wavelength. It's a much better way. In some respects, I almost want to say that, that it's also the precursor of, of a mega trend on the future of work, so to say. You know, there's books like The Business Romantic, where Tim Leiberich talks about you have to have this romance in the work you have to do. There's Frederick Laloux Reinventing Organizations where there's more and more these couples and people that really try to work together and ha ha have this, this lifestyle or romance in the way they do the work, that it's not separate, that you're spending 40 hours a week one place and your partner's 40 hours elsewhere, and then you kind of meet in the evenings on the weekends, which is very minimal time, and regurgitate how your, how your days were. And so I love that, and, and that progress and that future way of thinking. I know Niels has some real important questions for you as well on the me on megatrends as well. It's, it's such a wonderful story uh, with you and John. And uh, for me, it's interesting. How do you see the futurist industry the last 26 years like emerging and changing? Because it's a very young industry. I, I once met a guy in a, in a Delta plane to New York and he said he's in the mining industry and his industry exists in 3,000 years. So 3,000 years ago, they, they had the first industry associations and came together in the mining industry. And he asked me what I'm doing. And I said, I'm in the trend mining industry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my industry, the first people did this was like Face Popcorn or uh, Lee Edelcourt or you, you and, and John Naisbitt. And this, this is like, maybe 40 years ago or 30 years, but, but not 3,000 years. So we are in such a young industry. So for me, it's very interesting to see the last 26 years from your perspective, how did this change? How did the futurists and foresight industry emerge? You work a lot with governments. Do they more and more on a professional way use the future insights, use the megatrends, uh, also corporates, they, they just start to build up departments using foresight, using scenarios, pictures of the futures. And how do, do, how do you see the change in the last 26 years in, in, in our industry? And are we becoming a real industry or are we part of consulting or keynote or market research or are, are we a known industry? And how, how, how do you see the, the emergence of the industry and the future of the industry? Yeah, I think you're asking a fish how he feels in the, he or she feels in the water. So <laughs> we, should, we should consult with people who are, have an outside in look. But, um, you know, 
when I got to know John and uh, as a publisher, of course, his uh, uh, brand was futurist and he always refused. He always said, I'm not a futurist. I'm a nowist. I am uh, uh, monitoring what's going on in the world now. And that allows me to make conclusions for the future. Uh, so basically, this is what we both agreed on. Uh, if you want to anticipate what will be in the future, what you have to do is, like you said it, Niels, very well, mining. It's, it's, it's work. You have to, uh, on one hand, uh, you know, uh, read a lot, look, uh, have different sources. On the other hand, you have to be on the ground to check because the mood in the country can tell you something very different than what is written about the country or an organization and so forth. In general, I would, I would really like to make a difference between people who focus on the big developments, on big trends or mega trends, and the many who are actually concentrating on consumer trends. Because there's a, a, a big difference. And I think there's a, a justification why so many concentrate on consumer trends, because mega trends do not change every year. You, 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 you know, they don't come down like rain in spring and summer rain and autumn rain and but you have an, a new megatrend. That's not how it happens. Uh, the, the real megatrends uh, that John was writing about in 1982 are still in place. And we it, there will be time before there will be such a big shift as we had it uh, from industrial to information age. So, uh, so we have to be careful about the frame in which we operate. Are we focusing on global developments like geopolitical developments uh, or are we focusing on what is happening within megatrends, which are various consumer trends, which of course are also influenced by megatrends. But but so I think there are two categories and um, we have probably not been very good uh, in watching the market of futurists. We were much too much concentrating on what was interesting to us. Mm. And um, we were both focusing, I said it a, a little earlier that we are both big picture people. So very early on in 2000, it was also clear uh, remember John wrote um, Megatrends uh, Asia in 1995. It was clear that Asia is going to, to becoming a very important uh, player in the global community. And I remember that as a publisher, uh, there was the uh, Asian financial crisis and I had a you know, reporter of an important magazine call me and say, see, see, Nesbitt was wrong. Nesbitt was wrong. We have the financial crisis, Asia is out. And that's, you know, you, you, cannot, you cannot see megatrends by looking at a short frame and then, you know, a bump in the road throws you off and out is the megatrend and you are looking for the next one. That's not how it goes. That's why when you're really focusing on megatrends, you need to have the big picture. And that drove us more and more to China because that's where most of the happening was going on. 
when we take a look back into the 1980s, we had even a bit earlier, uh, after the Second World War, we, we had such an Americanization of the world. So we have all over, we have US brands and US products. Do you, do you think we will have like an Asiatization uh, of, of our world more and more, also with the Belt Road and seeing more and more Asian products in our markets, Asian brands, uh, business models like WeChat uh, coming into our market? Will this be like the same wave effect? We had the Americanization and now having the Asiatization uh, the next years. You know, it's very interesting uh, because in the year 2000, no, was it 2001 when China joined the WTO? Was it 2001 or 2002? Uh, you can correct me, please. Uh, we were uh, talking to a lot of Chinese and they said, will this mean Americanization for China? Then came the year 2008 and the financial crisis in the West. And all of a sudden, uh, China became aware that the West is not invulnerable and uh, their self-confidence rose. You could feel it. You know, every time you came, there was a little more self-confidence, a little more critical look. Today, if we jump another 12 years, uh, there is a very strong self-confidence there is an awareness that China is going to be the number one economy in the world. I mean, by PPP, it already is, but, you know, in absolute figures, that is there. But the big question is, how can culture, I mean, the question that is, is for the Chinese, can China become culturally as influential as the United States? And our answer is it will take a long time because it's not only that our affinity to Chinese opera is not as strong as to, you know, uh, Gershwin or mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that's another hurdle. But the American way of life is so different from the Chinese way of life. You have a 5,000 year old culture, which is in the bones of the Chinese. Their look uh, to the government, their look to society, their look to, to uh, social orders, everything is, is different. But that is part of the Chinese way of life. And that is very hard to export. Other things have been exported very quickly, you know, uh, um, what's it called, martial arts and, and other things. That was picked up, even calligraphy and, and uh, Chinese paintings, the art market has exploded. So that, yes, but the, 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 the aura of freedom, the aura of fun, uh, the aura of... Um, uh, just uh, conquering the world in a, in, a, in a cultural way. That will take time and that would be certainly a goal that the Chinese would have, but you can, you can strategically probably and obviously become the economic leader of the world, but you cannot strategically become the role model of the world. That's not possible. You, you bring up an interesting point, Doris, um, that I, I want to touch on it or see if there's a little bit more to it. When I read your books, uh, it comes out to me, but I 
want to check. I just had uh, Professor Dr. Matthias Glaubrecht on my talk show uh, last week, and we spoke about his book, The End of Evolution. He's an evolutionary biologist, and he says, you know, for evolution to evolve, it's millions of years to hundreds of thousands of years for, for that type of evolution, but there's this <clears throat> collective or cognitive cultural evolution that occurs. Uh, it's it's much faster than normal evolution, but it's still pretty slow. And we're seeing that that's changing a lot and evolving a lot. And in your books, it's not these mega trends. There is a strong aspect of cultural evolution or cultural trends that emerge. Uh, can you go, is this kind of what you're telling us? And can you go a little bit deeper into that for us? Uh, you know, as you were asking this question, I was just uh, thinking that uh, we have, in a way, a sad situation because we are losing the, the cultural positive influence of the West. This is sort of fading away. And uh, we don't have really a cultural strong positive influence that is replacing it. So what are we going to merge? I mean, what about our values? Uh, when you look at the United States today, uh, the admiration, if you, if you have a clear picture, is not there anymore. If you look at Europe, you have 26 uh, uh, members who cannot find a, an agreement on relatively simple questions. Uh, if you look at China, well, China has its own um, strategy. China wants to be influential, is influential, but in a very different way. So if we talk about cultural influence, uh, we, can, we can talk about music, but the stream is still more west to east. We can talk about art. The stream was a lot uh, for a while, uh, Asia to, to Europe. Uh, so, uh, and then we can we cannot put all Asian countries in one pot. You have so many different uh, structures, so many different uh, ideas, models, personalities, uh, even though I have to say, if, you, if it comes to our human needs, we're all the same. And if, if it comes to talking and understanding and finding people with whom you can exchange, uh, you always find people with whom you have an easy understanding. But uh, I couldn't uh, give an answer where the cultural direction will be in the future. I think uh, we just have the, the responsibility to contribute as much as we can, whether it's literature, whether it's uh, values, whether it's other things that we can contribute or uh, interesting podcasts people can listen to. Niels, do you have something to ask? I think the US culture was so easily to export because it's so explicit. It's, it's always very well explained, very clear brand, very clear value proposition. The, the US culture is super explicit because they learned to be explicit because they, they had so many different people in, in their country, like all coming together, the whole world coming together. So they, they learned how to explicit explain things. 
And when you look back to the 3000 year old Chinese culture, it's very implicit. It's like all between the dots because they learned 3000 years how to communicate like the Japanese culture as well. It's super, super complex and very, very implicit. It's so much between the dots, between the lines, what you say in, in the air. And uh, th this is American is like not in the air. It's like really explicit coming out, just do it. Yeah. And so it's difficult to, to export like such an implicit uh, Asian uh, Chinese culture is super, super difficult. And now let me, let me add, I, I think it's nowadays we are in a world where we are not only in reality, uh, where culture happens, when we, when we look at our kids where they grow up like three, four, five hours a day, they, they grow up in virtual reality. So this is like a parallel reality, like a digital parallel reality where, where also culture and art happens, where they meet in three-dimensional virtual rooms doing art, like building blocks like Legos, building universes, doing... Uh, WeChat and Instagrams and, and, and YouTubes and, and all the content they publish uh, is, is in like in a parallel universe, which, is, which leads us like to a hybrid reality. And also the world now is much more connected. So maybe, maybe we, we go the next narrative of, of our culture will be like a real global hybrid reality culture where it's, it's more mix and mingle, you know, it's not so easy anymore. It's, it's more like coming all together on a global scale because the whole world is connected via airplanes, but now even through the virtual uh, remote everything connectivity. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, we, have a dis we have an advantage and we have a disadvantage. I, I'm talking about John and me. Uh, we, our children are grown up. So we could do whatever we wanted to do. The disadvantage is that we are far behind uh, in our understanding of, of uh, the worlds in which kids are moving. And uh, you are absolutely right. Uh, the Asia is exporting a lot of these games and uh, there's a mix in this culture, which is uh, enormous. And we have a, a friends uh, whose son or two sons actually are totally in this culture. And that mixes up, even though to a high degree uh, uh, with an American influence still, but that mixes up the two worlds, so to say. Yes, that's I, that's I, absolutely- I think a wonderful example is esports. Esports is so popular in Asia and it's clear that it's sports and you meet like 50,000 people in an arena in a sports stadium watching other people gaming on esports and they're really like heroes and champions in, in, their, in their society. And uh, in, in, in Europe and in the US, we still talk about if this is really sports and they just do gaming and uh, should, should this be considered as, as sports? So. Uh, I think there in, in, in Asia, it's, it's, things happen so, so much faster and also so much more in the digital universe that for us is like sometimes complex to understand what, what the culture of the future of, will be. And I think it will be uh -huh. really global and hybrid. Yeah, but uh, you know, I'd be skeptical to not overestimate the digital world because at the end, our needs and our, our desires are still in the real world. And when you are our personal needs, and, and, and uh, I, I, I'm talking about, and when you, when you move in China, it doesn't matter whether you use the subway, whether you are sitting in a restaurant or whatever you do, the people are glued to their phones. 
And it's a very sad to watch a family sitting at a dining table, four people playing games mm -hmm. or, uh, or WeChat or do whatever with other people and losing uh, the interaction with each other. I mean, after all, as nice as it is to be on video, if we could sit here together on a, in, a, in a living room and see each other and, and, and just be in the same room, that would be an increase, at least for my opinion. Uh, so uh, this uh, game playing, you know, all, all the parents of the children that uh, I know, they have to limit the time because the children are sitting alone, focusing on their... Uh, uh, diverses, whatever they have, and, and, and the social contact to go out, play games uh, with their friend, uh, learn not how to solve a digital, uh, uh, you know, friction, a digital fight, but a real fight. How do I find a common ground with a friend, not with a digital friend whom I can turn off if I don't, if I get too tired. So I think we have to, to balance uh, these high-tech uh, possibilities with the human needs that we still have. If we take a look at human needs like working and, and sex and entertainment and all this, this is all happening virtual nowadays. So the, you have, oh, yeah? I think more than 50% of the people in the US doing marrying, marrying met online. So more than 50%. Met online is, is it, oh, online so, yeah, was, yeah, was yeah. a place. So yeah, and and this this is true to everything. Yeah, we have yes. remote remote sports like people do yeah. sports fitness studios at home. Yeah. We we yeah. have we have remote yeah. work. We have remote entertainment. We have remote sex. We have remote work. We have remote shopping. I don't know about that, but <laughs> everything. <laughs> we'll have to take your we'll have to take your word on the remote. So sex, maybe uh, uh, topic, 20, yeah. 2020 is the year not for the pandemic, but for remote everything. Yeah. So yeah. when we look back in, in time and looking back to the year 2020, when we are in 2030, maybe we say this this was really the, the year where everything went remote, right? And this is a new reality. Also, also my parents told me, I mean, when I grew up, I was like three hours a day the kids were watching telly and this was like oh no you telly is so bad you don't need to watch telly go out on the street and play football or something like this yeah and, and now yeah now they do something else and i think every generation has this new new paradigms and ways to way to connect yeah? this this yeah, is the reality it's set from our perspective but it's it's a reality for for the kids growing up nowadays. It's, it's their world. Yeah, but it's 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 a world that's not richer, for my opinion, because uh, and and you know I'm in an age where you can say, oh yeah, the grandmothers have you know these old-fashioned ideas, but let me just take one of the things uh, that's reading. Now, reading is not only that you can say, I read this and that and classical literature, modern literature. It's because you learn how to express yourself. And Wittgenstein uh, wrote a, a sentence which I really love. He said, the uh, borders of your words, of your language, define the borders of your world. And if you are not able to express yourself because you are used to all these short, uh, uh, shortcuts uh, on, on the various devices you use, 
uh, then how can you how can you convince somebody of somebody how can you present a project how can you how can you express your opinion how can you uh, perform in whatever you do if you have not an education that teaches you how to uh, express who you are and what you want to be when i look at tiktok they the kids express themselves in tiktoks in very very short videos and i think our brain not only works with with text and and, and books but also very well due to our 200,000 year evolution where there was not so much text in the last 200,000 years we, we work very well with pictures and, and moving images yeah? our brain functions like this and uh, our kids learn to express themselves in, in 5 or 10 seconds videos uh, which is also very strong to really pitch what you want to do and it's maybe in, in, I understand what you say that this is important to to, to, to to understand all this like big picture of the words but i think it's also a new way to express yourself with videos absolutely absolutely and let's be honest not everybody is interested in the big picture of the world because everybody is interested especially now what's happening to me and what's happening in, to my environment, what's happening uh, with the, the, my goals, how can I realize my goals, how can I do this and that. So uh, I, I think the big picture, you know, whether which country is gaining or losing in the, uh, on importance in the global community is a little further away when it comes to the problems of unemployment, and health problems and so forth. So uh, you're absolutely right. And also we have to admit that each generation has in a way its own language. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, um, our grandchildren communicate in a different way uh, than, uh, than our children and I mean my age and, uh, and, our, and we ourselves. So um, I well think said. Well that said. that is something we have to consider mm. in every age we had in the past so and so many years yes well, i want to play the devil's advocate a little bit and get some more insights on china so i think uh, a, a lot of the mega trends are moving from pushback from asia and china um to to not let uh, the united states or other Others bully them as has been done in the past where uh, we, we just recently saw it as well uh, uh, last year where <clears throat> China had a strong pushback on taking the United States plastic trash and other trash that they says, you know, no, you can take it again. Um, but there's also this trend from, from China where um, and I call it this, and I don't, I don't know if there's another term, Niels or, or Doris, you would probably know better than I do, but it's, I call it hacking the system. So if, if there's embargoes or problems put into place via trade, where they're not allowed to, to, to do any kind of, a, 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 of trade, China just hacks the system. They'll take it and import it to Malaysia and then export it from Malaysia or take it to Thailand and then take it from there, whether it's honey or food or whether it's computer parts or whatever else. But there's also this big pushback that 
China is not only the, not anymore the cheapest place to get your products done, it's one of quality, it's one of uh, high standards, uh, um, uh, good worker ethics in, in a lot of areas from coffee to computers, you know, whatever we look at. And that there's now more pushback that if, if, if we're going to produce your products, we're not going to be um, the cheapest because we're not going to take that total environmental impact here in China so that you can thrive and, and benefit from your iPhones or whatever technology, or whatever garbage you, we're not going to be your world's garbage. And so um, that's a big, whether you call it planetary services, mega trend that China is saying, we're not going to play that game anymore. I'd love to hear your thoughts or if your ideas are, are the same in that respect as well. I think um, just to, to be on the big picture, which I think is very important in understanding China. Um, in the year 1921, uh, when the Communist Party of China was founded, they made the 100-year plan to by the year 2021 have a country of modest wealth. You know, just think for a moment, a hundred year plan. None of the people who were sitting there uh, making that decision in a country that was, you know, destroyed and, and, and just in a terrible situation, uh, making a plan that in 100 years, we want the, the mass of our population to live in modest wealth. This was the one frame that China put up. The next frame that China put up was in 1949, when they said that in 2049, the final victory of the uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics will be in place. And now what you have to do to understand the thinking is to have to put everything China is planning uh, and doing into that frame. Because um, no matter what setbacks China had through the first hundred years to 2021, they reached their goal. And uh, here we go to a very uh, strong difference that we have experienced from the top, top leaders to the, the people on the street, you know, the street sweeper. It's a learning society. They are like sponges. When they meet you, whether you as a country, you as a company, you as a person, they want to get anything they can learn from you out of you. And then apply it into their life, their uh, company, uh, their country in a way that matches the frame in which they operate. Uh, when you look back to 1980, when uh, Deng Xiaoping was coming into power, he made an absolute U-turn because he understood that the country couldn't get to the goal, couldn't reach the goal if they continue the path. So why there is one unshakable truth that is the, the uh, ruling of China's Communist Party, they are willing to take the turns that are necessary to reach the goal. And that brings me back to your question, Mark, uh, that uh, 
of course China doesn't see itself in the year 2049 uh, being just the workshop of the world or just uh, uh, getting the garbage of the world or whatever. China sees itself as a country, as a middle kingdom it once was, and most of the, the centuries, if you look back, it's a surprise how often China has been the largest economy in the world. Uh, it sees itself in that position and they want to reach everything that's necessary to be in that position and have, which will be difficult in my opinion, and have the, the acceptance in holding that position. So uh, whether it's an economic, cultural, social goal, uh, everything is within that frame. And, and and when you look at certain developments, put it in that frame and ask yourself, uh, will that serve the overall goal, despite that China is willing to make extra tours, U-turns, everything? That, that's a very, it's very, it's very cultural, but I, I sure as hell wish the United States would adopt that long-term uh, type of vision when policies are made uh, multi-generational. I mean, there's so much short-termism in policies and politicians in the United States where it would be nice that, that, that for, the, for the rest of the world, but also for the US, if some of the policies they made were also multi-generational of a hundred years and not this uh, short-term quick fix uh, things, which, which ties back into the cultural aspect of that. But I really appreciate you touching on that, uh, Doris. I, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a kudos in, in, in combination with a question. And there, there is an author that I had on the podcast. His name is uh, Thomas Yuli. He wrote a book called Human Business. And um, it just barely came out during the pandemic, which is a whole nother nightmare to go through when, when you release a book in, in lockdown oh, yeah. situations. But he quoted John uh, in his book, he, he gave a nice quote and a recognition to you uh, where John says, the most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century will not come because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. And that throughout all your books is something that I love that both of you really touch on that human aspect of trends and culture um, of where we need to go because there's not just that one aspect of a trend of technology or that, there's a strong human factor to that, a, a culture almost. And um, so I'm not sure if, if we answered all Neil's questions more because we really wanted to focus in on the China uh, mega trends and whether, whether you have any more insights for us, what we can expect as major megatrends specifically for China. And that's, that's basically been your focus uh, as well with the Institute. Oh, yes. Um, uh, what we did was uh, uh, we, uh, you know, we started the Institute in, in uh, Tianjin. And uh, of course, focusing on, on China doesn't allow you to just be in one place. So uh, we moved around and uh, wherever we were, we had local people there to, to help us understand uh, uh, different things. Uh, 
for example, something that's totally strange to us is the um, uh, household uh, registration system uh, where you are uh, bound with all the benefits, social benefits uh, to the city where you have your, uh, I can't think of it now, the, the, the name, uh, where you are registered as a person. And when you move to another city, then uh, you have to pay more, you have to pay more for doctors, for schools. You know, these are uh, certain things in the, in the Chinese social system, which go way back, uh, which are a huge challenge for the uh, uh, local government and for the uh, federal government to, to uh, overcome. How do you solve uh, that problem without overburdening other systems. So that's one of the challenges that China for sure has to overcome uh, this challenge of the, the social uh, system, not to, not to mix it up with what the system that they are now uh, establishing in, in, not in the whole country, but in, in various places, the social credit system which is a, a plan to improve the moral, the ethics of the people. And, uh, you know, as a not a very unwanted side effect to be in better control of the people. But also when you look at, at China, the people in China are receiving that in a very different way than we receive it. They see it uh, uh, that it's also a protective frame. We see such things just as controlling frames. But in general, you know, the Chinese are so eager to, uh, to become more global, not, not in a way of losing their Chinese being Chinese, but in a way of uh, spreading their Chinese way to the globe. They're very good in business. Um, when you do business with the Chinese, uh, don't try to put them in a too tight box because they hate to be put in, in too tight boxes because things could change and then we need to make a turn and then we have every move is a single paragraph. How can we move? Uh, how can we make the most of it if we are in such a tight frame? So, um, the, the, the path to China is certainly that it's uh, going to do everything to become the leader, and it already is a, a leader in, in certain technologies. It, uh, it is not interested in anymore in, in all the technologies that hurt the environment. It's a, it's a building up of self-confidence. It's a building up of let's educate our children more and better. Uh, it's a... Um, but all under a, we could say, increasing strong influence of uh, the government. Thank you so much. There, I mean, there'd be one last comment that I'd make to that and then I'll turn it over to Niels. And, and uh, I don't know if you'd have anything to say. Uh, in uh, 2017, I hosted uh, uh, Top uh, conference of the parties to the United Nations, a, a plenary that was the launch and presentation of the global energy interconnection, which is a Chinese-driven uh, movement to create a renewable energy grid around the world, not just China, around the world, and it's spearheaded by um, a company called Guideco and it's in partnership with this global energy interconnection. 
that is really pushing that the world becomes not only uh, global citizens, regardless of Chinese rule and regime, but that we have a global infrastructure. And that's, you know, what Niels mentioned earlier with the, 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 the new update of the Silk Road, basically, uh, of what's coming there and what, what affects long-term and big positive effects, and maybe, maybe some cultural effects as well on, on society. But those are, um, those are long-term infrastructural mega trends, in my opinion, that change the way we, 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 we take care of the basics, not only energy infrastructure, but also how we feed each other and how, how things are done. And so um, I, it, it's amazing to see those progresses in, in the world beca because of, of China's long-term vision uh, of the future. Um, if you, uh, I mean, China has already taken the lead in green energy. Uh, and if you, you know, sadly, if you come from China to the United States, you think you're going back to the stone age uh, of uh, trains. You know, you go, when, when we were in, in, in uh, December in, in China, just as an example, we went to another province 450 kilometers away it took the train one and a half hours to be there. You know, you step on that high-speed train, you go with 325 kilometers per hour, and you're there. And, and it's not complicated. You don't have all the hassle you have in an airplane. And China has such a, a large network of, uh, of, of these high-speed trains already. Uh, the, the transportation, everything is so so much state of the art, much more than if you look to the uh, United States. And that's something that, that certainly is a result of uh, how can we learn, how can we not only learn from the achievements of other countries, but how can we also learn from the mistakes to other, of other countries? And we've been to cities in China, I can tell you, it was terrible because you, 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 you could hardly see your hand in front of your face. And this is changing because they understood that the, 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 uh, the Communist Party of China, they can tell the people a lot about economics and global developments, but they cannot tell you you have a blue sky when you can't see the next house. So it is very much to their, their own bone uh, to clean the air and to have a clean environment for the Chinese. Because if people die because the, the, the food is, is uh, so contaminated with all kinds of metals and so forth, you know, you have the damage in your own country. You gotta clean your house first. And that's something that they understood and uh, it's to their own benefit. And, and then they're smart enough to want to export that you know, it's, yeah. it's... I, I also think the past Olympics that they, that they had there where there was all the problems with the air pollution and, and that was also a form of a black eye that they, they don't want to ever relive. And so they're, they're really pushing hard and I've seen leaps and bounds of things occur all throughout all Asia just to, to fix that problem. Yeah. Go ahead. You Sorry, uh, uh, one of the things that's really significant 
um, when we are when we were traveling in China, no matter which city, uh, and we were invited to the governor, to the to the mayor, and to the party secretary, who is always the most important person, uh, then they sit, they ask you questions, and they listen to you. How many? Uh, people or leaders in, in, in the West have invited Chinese people to listen and learn from them. You know, uh, uh, Mark, you mentioned the books I wrote for China's youth. We did a book tour uh, and it was fascinating. We were uh, uh, giving talks and had discussions with uh, students, 2,900, 600 in many different parts, many provinces of China. We were never told what to say. We were, ne I, we sometimes asked, is there any subject? Because, you know, it's not necessary that we make a, a fuss about something. No, just say whatever you want and have a discussion, whatever you like. You know, and then people come, the, the students came and they said, you know, just, so that we have Western people, we have you here and we can discuss with you. And our teachers, our professors are enabling us. And the same is we, you know, the party school is the, the, the that's a big compound in Beijing where all the, the leading politicians have to go periodically to be uh, re-educated. It's kind of a, a government university to be to be to stay at the state of the art, well, they invite Westerners as well to speak there, and we were invited to speak about democracy because you know in 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 one of our books we had compared um, the democracy that China, as China understands it as a vertical democracy where you have to keep the equilibrium between the top-down forces and the bottom-up forces. And that's the balance that uh, such an autocratic system has to keep. The equilibrium between the force of the people and the directions the government gives. While we have a vertical system where you have, uh, Mark, you said it, where you have interruptions every four, five years, and you can have U-turns every four or five years, because Niels, as you said, there cannot be a consensus that let's have a 20-year plan for the United States to eliminate racism, and we will all together work on it. No, that's not possible. That's and these so are, interesting, yes. If, if you look at this, the three leadership models in the world, then, then you have the US model where you say everything is possible. It's like grassroots. You can be a startup. You, you, can, you can become like Elon Musk. Yeah? Everything is possible, like bottom up. And, and then you have the Chinese model, which you just explained, which is like very, very good top-down alignment and bottom-up power. And yeah. Which, which is very, very powerful uh, because we have so many or orientation from top down and so many people from the grassroots really want to do something. And, and then you have the European model, which is kind of like a middle management. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a sandwich, but it's all in, in between and we have to discuss and we have to involve thousands of people to do a decision in our associations, in the middle management. So there's a three different leadership models. If, if you know you have so much experience like with megatrends and also 
what Mark said in developing people and developing leaders, uh, what, what advice would you give? And it's maybe my, my final question. What, what advice would you give to, to leaders uh, how, they, how they can lead in, in their business for society and, and for the planet for, for the next 10 years, for the next decade? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to sound too grand um, because it's difficult enough to be a leader, one has to admit, too. But uh, I think that uh, one of the things is that we need leaders who are above average. We have too many average people making a career in their political environment because they are good in whatever it takes to move up the ladder in their political party, but not because they are good in what is good as a vision for their country. Yeah. And I think this is very much a moral question. What are the, what are the, 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 the what's the mission uh, a person has? Is there a mission or is there just the goal, I want to become whatever, uh, uh, get into whatever position I, uh, there is. Uh, I think those idealistic politicians that, for example, after the war, when, a, when the countries were really in a very bad situation and, and the first idea was, how can I serve my country? It's, it sounds very uh, idealistic, but at the end, that's what the profession of a politician is about. And uh, it, politicians should be paid better. If I run a country, why would I have a lousy payment and, and other uh, people who run a company have uh, 10 times, 100 times what I make? So uh, we need politicians with a moral standing, with a vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know how to get that. That's so true. Thank you very much. We need great visionary leaders with a mission. Uh, such, such a nice closing because this also, Mark, comes back to our core human skills. What the World Economic Forum said, what are, what are the core skills? I like to, to be a creative, inspiring, imaginable leader with emotional intelligence and negotiation skills but but very much important is like this inspiration power visionary leadership yes yes well, one thing that i would add to that is is we we need that visionary leadership but more than anything we need politicians to be diplomatic we need them based in the skills of, of what dora said earlier to listen to be diplomatic to to hear all sides and to have that instead of just to have politicians pushing their next term or their short term in office. Um, I mean, there's so much time wasted in these processes where, you know, it's a year to get in the office, then they get in the office and then there's another year wasted until they get up and do anything. And it's such an inf inefficient as we're seeing worldwide an inefficient system. I, I actually have uh, a couple more questions for you, Doris, if you don't mind. And the, the, the biggest one, in my opinion, is the, the hardest question. It's the burning question, WTF. And I do not mean the swear word. I mean, what's the future? Yeah, the burning question is WTF. 
and it's to you, what's the future? I, I truly believe this can only be answered for each person for yourself. Uh, we are now in a time which I call halftime. And half times we have throughout our lives. We have it in politics, we have it as a company, we have it as people. Now, what is the future is what you, what uh, you, what I do, what each one of us does, that all these little, little, little mosaic stones will form the future. And if we are strong enough, if we, if we tend to say, I'm too, too small, I cannot move anything, then nothing will happen. And I'm not talking about big revolutions and, and you know, burning down uh, something. But in our world, we can, we can do the best and we cannot change the systems. The, the future will be, the big picture is that uh, under the leadership of China, emerging economies will gain importance. We will have to adapt to a new competition. We will have to adapt to uh, all the digitalization uh, in our working world. We will, we will have to deal with uh, uh, unpleasant and pleasant uh, consequences of the, these developments. But at the end, we are the creators of our world. We, we decide when we're in a half time. You know, we are, we are always uh, either intentionally or it's, it's imposed on us. We get in these periods, which, which, which I call half time. And then we make a turn to this or that direction. And, uh, uh, you know, when right now, as um, John gets less mobile, this is a halftime we have to deal with. We have to see how can we make the most out of the situation. An entrepreneur who is now, whose who's, who's ground is taken away because of the condition, the environment of a pandemic, has to decide how am I, uh, reorganize, reinvent my business. And I think uh, that's what we constantly have to do, that these uh, times in which we have to reinvent ourselves, in which we have to try to be a positive influence in our small environment and then in bigger circles as much as we can into bigger environments, this is uh, the best contribution we can do and not just lean back and uh, wait and see. The, the last question I have for you to wrap up our podcast is basically a sustainable takeaway for our listeners. I, I, I would like you um, to depart one message to our listeners that has the power to change their life or influence them. And, and, and the caveat to that is, is a lot of supposed futurists or, or, or business leaders or those looking to the future um, as well as trends, as well as megatrends, they're reading your books. You, you are setting the course curriculum for a lot of people on the future of their movements and, and how they do business. And so if you had a message to depart to them, the power to change our future, their lives, what would that message be? You know, when we tend, when we look into the future or when we look at whatever is of interest, we tend to seek uh, 
and find something that confirms an opinion we already have. So this is the big danger when you want to look into the future that you have to uh, watch out how you make your judgments. Try to step back from your personal opinion. Try to look at things as they are and uh, independent from your emotions. You know, that's very important. We, 80% of our decisions are driven by emotions. Try to, to uh, step back from your emotion and look into your business, look into uh, your environment, look at yourself and try to cut down on, pre, uh, on, on a preset mind and try to cut down on the emotion and the wish to get confirmation for what you are already doing. Be open, be open and willing to make a change. Neil so Doris, thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And that's all I have, unless you have any words of wisdom, final thoughts, <laughs> that's it. Yes. Thank you so um, much. Fantastic closing. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Doris. And uh, we wish you and John a wonderful holiday season and that you uh, arrive safely in 2021 and we see each other soon and maybe catch up again on some of, uh, of your other work. I'll put in the show notes, your new updated website and some of the links to your books so that people yeah. could come out and, and check you up and support uh, your, your institute as well. Thank you so much, Doris. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.